Okay, if, you, if you've been away for a few weeks and you want to be able to catch up with what we're doing, listen to the last two weeks of messages on my website from this class because those are critical. That is the change that has occurred because of the unpardonable sin, because of the rejection of the Messiah based upon his being demon-possessed. That's what the, the judgment was proclaimed. Uh, demon possession is, is what the leadership in Israel proclaimed upon him. He then uh, uh, put forth the irrevocable, unpardonable sin upon that generation. We talked about how that's nothing that we can commit today. Uh, and, then, and then also how individuals could get saved out of that generation. But that generation was doomed to utter destruction, which occurred in 70 A.D., about uh, 35 years after he made that proclamation, 35 or 40 years after uh, and then, and how that was the third time a proclamation of destruction had come upon Israel that was irrevocable. The first one at Kadesh Barnea, and because of that, an entire generation had to die in the wilderness. The second time was just be, was the deportation to Babylon. The word had come, irrevocable word, that destruction was going to come, and this was the third time. And now we see an, a change in the ministry that is inexplicable unless we look at it in the light of this unpardonable sin. And what we're going to see is, is the next point here is we're going to read in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 12, <clears throat> right after he finishes talking about the judgment that's going to come upon them, you see an immediate now change in relationships. So the things that are going to come as a result of the unpardonable sin is there's a change in relationships. Look in, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 46. And while he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and his brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward the disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and my sister and mother. So, after the proclamation of destruction upon that, that land, and how he said even the Gentiles will be standing up at the white throne judgment, <clears throat> those from Nineveh who had repented are going to judge those, uh, uh, the, the Queen of the South, the Queen of Sheba, how she was given a little bit of light, and she came to, to understand God. They had been given so much light. And to give you an idea of how much light they were given, have any of you ever physically seen Jesus? No, neither have I. <clears throat> Jesus said to Thomas, when Thomas said, My Lord and my God, because he had seen, he had touched him, risen from the dead, he said to Thomas, you believe because you see, but blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. The vast majority of people before the life of Jesus and after the life of Jesus have never seen the Messiah. Here he was in their midst, speaking to them, reaching out to them, healing them, proclaiming in their midst, and they rejected him. They had given, been given extreme light. And that's why he said the people at Nineveh, how we had read last time, had been given just a little bit of witness. They would have repented long ago had they received the witness that you had. And they did repent. Uh, and and uh, uh, the Queen of the South, the Queen of Sheba, repented just with a little bit of light from Solomon. And you've been given so much light. 
so much was given to them more than any other generation. That's why upon that generation, that particular Jewish generation, not Jews in general, that particular generation that lived in the time of Jesus, destruction was going to come upon them. Now, there's a change of relationship. So how is the ministry now going to change? Well, number one, ministry is changing based based not on a physical descendancy. Because Jews, even to this day, relate their salvation based upon descendancy from Abraham. A bloodline descendancy from Abraham gets you in. You're good to go because of a bloodline descendancy. Doesn't happen in the body of Christ. Jesus is saying, who are my mothers? And who is my mother? And who are my brothers? I mean, that sounds like a hard thing to say. Your mother's standing right there. He says, relationships are changing. It is no longer based on bloodline descendancy, but it is based on those who obey the will of God. Whether they be Jew, whether they be Gentile, they've got to obey the will of God. It is no longer based on the descendancy. Because Jews, in that day and remaining today, have always said, if you are a Jew, you're in. And in fact, uh, 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 Abraham stands there to pull back anybody who might somehow get off the wrong track as, as, as they're deciding between uh, heaven and hell, that, they pull, that Abraham is there to pull him back. Jesus said, not so anymore. The relationships are changing. And you will find, when you become a believer in the body of Christ, that the relationships in the body of Christ become more meaningful to you even than your own physical family very often. And this is particularly so if your family doesn't know the Lord. So if you come from an unbelieving family, though you love your brother, you love your sisters, you love your parents, when you come into a relationship with Christ, the church becomes a family to you. Relationships in the body of Christ become a treasure to you. Jesus said, this is going to be a change now. It is no longer based on the sentency. You're going to see the relationships in the body of Christ are become, going to become much firmer, much more dear to you now. And, and so now let's read on. And now remember, there's this amazing change that has occurred. His whole way of teaching changes, his whole way of ministering, his whole way of healing. Remember we talked about prior to the, the uh, unpardonable sin. Jesus would heal whether they had faith or not. He, the man at Bethesda said, I don't know who healed me. He just walked up and healed me. He didn't even know who Jesus was. It was based, it was, it was to show forth the testimony of Jesus' Messiahship to the masses, to the nation of Israel. After the unpardonable sin, no more healings were ever done to a Jew without there being faith. Faith was now a requirement. It didn't, was not a requirement before, now it's a requirement. Moreover, whenever he would heal somebody, Prior to the unpardonable sin, he'd say, go out and tell people what, what God has done for you. He told the man, the, the leper, go and show yourself to the priests. Do it. Now, after the unpardonable sin, what does he say? Don't tell anybody about this. It is the ministry of silence is now coming. <clears throat> to the Gentiles, it was different. To the Gentiles, he told them, go out and tell people. But to the Jews, don't tell them. He is going to start teaching us, not like he did in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, remember what we talked about, was instruction for Israel of what the law should bring you to. If you are following the law of Moses, remember he said, not one letter or stroke of this law will be done away with until all is fulfilled. He was not pulling away from the law. He was saying, this is what the law should get you to. This is what it should do to you inside. He's done with that. Now he's going to begin to talk about what the new kingdom this new mystery kingdom is like. This is the instruction now. And the instruction is not for the masses anymore. It is for the twelve apostles 
and the ministry that they are to partake in once he's gone, and it is instruction about what the church is like. And you're going to see he only teaches in parables from this point onward. Before, he never taught in a parable. Never. You say, Jesus always taught in parables. Not so. He, he never taught in a parable prior to the unpardonable sin. Now he only teaches in parables. To the masses, only in parables. And in fact, so much so, if you just jump down to verse 10 of Matthew chapter 13, and the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? They asked this question because he had never done that before. And then if you look in Matthew chapter 13, verse 34, and all these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. Never again did he speak to them plainly like he did in the Sermon on the Mount. He spoke to the, the crowds only in parables. And he's going to tell them why he's now speaking in parables. He's going to say, because it's for you to know, the disciples, you're going to discern, but it's no longer for them to know. You say, well, that's not nice. Why does he? Because they had been given light, extreme light, they rejected it, they were lost. There is a time of decision. You could say, well, God loves everybody. He does. And He gives opportunity. He gives ample opportunity. He gave so much to them. He said, never again anymore. The masses followed and made a decision. And the decision was to say, agree with the leadership that Jesus was demon-possessed. And on that basis, they lost their opportunity. So let's look at verse, chapter 13, verse 1, and see the new teaching about the new kingdom. Then Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And a large crowd gathered to him, and he got into a boat, and he sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. So first of all, I want to see how Jesus was a good administrator. We had seen this sort of thing before. There's a whole crowd gathering around Jesus. He's on the beach. They're crowding in on him. When you are a speaker and the crowd is just coming in on him, you can't speak anymore. So what does he do? He gets in a boat, and he goes out in the water just a little ways, and he's speaking to this crowd who's up the hill coming from the water at the Sea of Galilee. This is a good administrator. You will notice a bad administrator. A good administrator you won't notice because everything goes well. A bad administrator, you, go, you, you say, uh, uh, could you tell the folks to uh, gather on that side of the room? And, um, uh, do you mind gathering on the other side of the room? Uh, uh, I think the, the pastor wants us to uh, uh, gather. I, I'm not sure how to, we're going to do this. And a good administrator walking, everybody, that side of the room, yes, you, there, 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 boom, they're gone. They're on that side of the room, just like that. <clears throat> Poor administrators don't know how to deal with crowd management. Have you ever seen anybody in the church like that? You give them a task and they don't know how to deal with it, because their giftings are other places. Jesus was a very good administrator. He had all the gifts, all the spiritual gifts, one of them being the gift of administration, but Jesus had all the spiritual gifts embodied in him. He was an administrator. He knew how to handle this. This is how you deal with crowds. Remember how he dealt with crowds? He had, had them sit down in groups of 50, and then he had his, his disciples. How did, how did he know how to do that? He knew how to administrate. You want to be in a church where a pastor understands administration, or else it's, it's just chaos. So, he deals with the administrative issues first, and then he gets into verse 3. He says, And he spoke these things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. And others fell on the rocky places, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. 
Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus spoke a parable, and the crowds were clueless. They didn't know what he was talking about. That was his plan. He was there to teach the disciples, to teach the twelve about the new kingdom, and to show them how to minister. In verse 10 it says, And the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him shall more be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah has, is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For, with, for the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear. So Jesus said, it says that the disciples were amazed. He's speaking in parables. They never knew him for this first year, year and a half of his ministry. A little over a year of his ministry. They never knew him to teach like this before. Why are you doing this? He says, because it's not for them, it's for you. A real change occurs. And if we don't understand the unpardonable sin and what occurred at that instance, then the Gospels make no sense. You think Jesus is is vacillating back and forth. He is not. He was one way. They made a decision to reject Him. He chose another way. And then He goes goes on to say, He says that um, they shall... It's alright. I'm okay. Uh... He says that he, he quotes now from Isaiah. That prophecy in Isaiah came as a prophecy that Isaiah gave concerning particularly the deportation to Babylon. They had rejected the prophets and they were going to be deported to Babylon. But this is an application of that prophecy. Jesus applies it to the people of that day. And he says it's like, it's like what was spoken by Isaiah is again being fulfilled. In other words, it's an application of that original prophecy of Isaiah for that deportation generation is being applied to this generation now as well. And uh, he says in verse 17, For I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, did not see it, to hear what you hear and did not hear it. He's saying this generation, you have no idea how much you got. The Messiah is in your midst. You are touching God. Nobody else has ever had this. That generation has not occurred in the same way. He says, the witness that you guys are getting is extreme. Now, the other thing that's important here is the mystery kingdom. Jesus calls it the mystery kingdom. In verse 11, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Now, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are exactly the same thing. They're synonymous. We've dealt with this before. If you look in the other Gospels, it's referred to as the kingdom of God. Matthew is writing to Jews. Jews don't use the name of God or the word God. Even today, you're writing to an Orthodox, when I write a letter to an Orthodox Jew, and I make mention of God, I write G-D. 
and because the name of God, using God, is too holy of a name to even write on paper because you might have to throw away that paper or delete that email. I mean, if, you, if God's name is really holy and, and you view it in that way, you, you should you know, do a print screen and never change that screen. I mean, forever you should, <laughs> it should be on that page. Never move those electrons around. I mean, it's, it's too holy. So, so Matthew uses the, the kingdom of heaven because he's writing to a Jewish audience. However, Jesus now calls it the mystery kingdom. Well, what is a mystery? In the scriptures, a mystery is something that was not revealed in the Old Testament, is now revealed in the New. The messianic kingdom, that the Messiah would come and establish a kingdom, there's more about that in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. That's not a mystery. The mystery is Christendom. The mystery is that there was going to be a church. That was never revealed. What was revealed is that Gentiles would come in, but never this structure of the church. That's why it's referred to also in the epistles. They also make many references to the mystery kingdom. Paul does. So, for example, in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is writing to the Ephesians, and he makes reference to this mystery that has come. The mystery is something that was not revealed in the Old Testament, but is now first revealed to the prophets in the New Testament. So Ephesians chapter 3, verse 2. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which is given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has been now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body of, Christ, of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I've been a minister. And he goes on. And also it's talked about in Colossians, Colossians, the mystery kingdom. Jesus is now teaching about the mystery kingdom. What the church is going to be like. What the apostles have to do. This is the instruction now. So you see that he's a very logical teacher. He knows, okay, this part is done. I'm teaching you now this part. Very logical. If you don't look at things in the light of the, the unpardonable sin, you think that Jesus is just jumping back and forth. You've had teachers like that. You talk about this and talk about that. And you're like, whoa, where is he? Have you ever had a teacher like that? And one guy told me that uh, uh, he didn't, the student was saying he didn't understand his professor at all. He was trying to explain something. So somebody asked the professor, could you explain that again? And the professor repeated himself exactly as he had before. And he didn't understand it. Then he said, you know, the, guy's, the professor's 10-year-old son was in the classroom and stood up. And then tried to explain it and did a better job than his father had done. <laughs> Something like that. But, but you, you see, Jesus very logically is following this pattern. He is beginning to teach to them what the church is going to be like. That's what's embodied in this. And so you say, now what does this parable mean? So they get him alone. And, and, and it says, in, it, you could read in Mark, they, they started asking him, you know, what does all this mean? And, and in, in, in Mark, Jesus begins to explain to them, but it's documented here. The part where Jesus said, okay, where they had said, what does this mean? Jesus explains it to them in private. He didn't explain this in public anymore. In private, he starts to explain to them what that parable meant. Because he says in Mark, that's the first parable. If you don't understand that one, you're not going to get the rest. So he explains to them, and here's what he says. 
In verse, 19, in verse 18, hear the parable, this is Mark 13, verse 18. Hear the parable, Mark 13, 18, of the sower. When one hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away even what's been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary, and when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one who the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom the seed was sown on good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, and indeed who bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. So this is Jesus' interpretation of the parable separately to the apostles. He doesn't explain all the parables unless they specifically ask him, what does it mean? And we have this one, because it says in Mark, Jesus said, if you don't get this one, you'll never get the rest. This is the beginning. He says, the word, something is sown. What is it that's sown? It's the word of God. This is why we preach. This is why we speak. This is what we are to sow. It is the word of God. It is the word of God that is sown. There are sowers that are to go out and sow. In order to spread the word of God. The new kingdom deals on this basis. This is not dealing on a physical descendancy from Abraham anymore. Not going to happen. We sow this based not on physical descendancy, but on the word of God. This is the seed that's sown. He says, when the word of the kingdom, anyone who hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. So what does it say? It says that there's something active here. When we go to share the word of God, guess who becomes active along with us? The evil one. The evil one is active in snatching that word away. When you speak the word to somebody, Satan, the evil one, his minions, they are active. They are snatching that word away. There is a battle against spiritual powers of darkness, which if you don't believe it, that is fine. You don't have to believe it. Then start tearing out this verse from the Bible. Tell Jesus he doesn't know what he's talking about if you don't believe it. Go ahead, tell him that. You know better than God. He said the evil one is active when you speak the word of God. And every time you speak the word of God and people are like, and what you're talking about, the evil one was active. He has snatched that out from them. Jesus said the evil one is active when the word, word goes forth. He says the evil one come and snatches it. Snatches away what has been sown. You plant a seed, the evil one goes digs it up and takes that seed out. It says he snatches away the seed that was sown. This happens. The evil one is active in preaching. He says, the one on whom the seed was sown on rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. So there's been, this man has been regenerated. He receives it. And then it says, but there's no firm root. He's only temporary. When the affliction of persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Remember a guy in college, the navigators had, had uh, shared with me, they had shared with him, and this guy they shared with. And he just exploded for the Lord. I mean, just, 
he was just so excited. And even the guy teaching, the navigator's guy who was teaching my Bible said John Robinson. I remember John Robinson had shared with this kid. And I heard John Robinson, I overheard him talking to somebody else saying, this is the guy, the first guy I've seen in my life that I've shared with that has really just latched on to the Lord and taken this, everything of it. Well, this guy went home for some break, you know, spring break or something, and his parents became livid and he just totally withdrew from anything of the Lord. It was just black and white. I mean, well, my parents told me I shouldn't be doing this. You know, they were alarmed by it. And, you know, we, 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 you know, we practiced this way we, not to, not to do, do this. And it was the first time I had ever seen somebody get so excited for the Lord for about two or three months. They go home and, and his parents were just so upset with him that, that he should you know, follow what the Pope says and not what the Bible says and just follow the Pope and he's good to go. And it just, boom, and dropped everything and totally withdrew back. Now, his heart was regenerated. He was saved. That doesn't go away. But he drew right back. That was, to me, the first physical in- illustration of this, where somebody could be so excited to an extreme that he was more excited about any- than anybody else. But then just as quickly, he slipped away. Jesus said, that's going to happen in this mystery kingdom. That you'll see. He gives another characteristic. He says in verse 22, The one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So, also active, also active is, is uh, uh, in this whole thing, is the world. The world is active in drawing people away. The worry of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the things that I want, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. Somebody can be really excited about the Lord and they start getting roots and, you know, they're growing. But then the baggage of the world starts to come on. And this is, this is what I see with young people. Is you can get really excited about the Lord. And I saw the same thing with college students as I used to see in prison ministry. The exact same thing. You share people, get really excited about the Lord. And they're in that environment where they came to know the Lord. And they're thriving and they're good and they're attending groups and they're going to Bible studies. Same thing in the prison. But then patterns start to change. You graduate and you don't have this instant group around you that's going away on mission trips and all of this. And the baggage of life, you get a mortgage payments and kids pulling on you and car payments and all these things. It's like, I don't even have time for these other things. I mean, it... You think when you're a student you don't have time? Let me tell you, when you get out, you're going to see your time just peter away in all sorts of areas. And the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches. I've seen the same thing with young men. You know, I'm going to go in this company, I'm going to you know, move on up and make a lot of money. I'm like, do you mind if I just grab your head by its ears and just shake it a little bit? Don't you realize what's going to happen? Your whole motivation, you're not talking at all about what you want to do with God. And this whole motivation that you're going to get yourself rich is going to draw you astray from the Lord. You see this many times with young professors. They, they were all excited about the Lord and then they get very busy as assistant professors and they, they, you know, just all this activity to do and they think, well, I'll talk about the Lord once I get tenure. And then they get tenure and they, you know, they're going, well, once I become a full professor. And before you know it, they're ready to retire. And they had never talked about the Lord. Nothing ever came of this. 
Remember, the world is very tricky. It will deceive you. It says the deceitfulness of riches. The world will deceive you into thinking that this is, that it can just take your life. You don't have time for this. You have time to seek the Lord. You have time to raise your children in the way of God. If you don't, you will really regret it. But the world will try to suck this very life that you have out of you. This excitement. He says, this is going to happen in the mystery kingdom. This is what life is going to be like in the church. Then he talks about the last category. He says, in verse 23, The one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, and who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. He said, so there's ones that fall on the good soil, and he starts bearing fruit. The world doesn't choke them out. And they continue. And it talks about different categories here. He says, these are all the same seed, but some bear a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. You see different impacts of different ministries. And it's not so much, how many people have you brought to the Lord? I mean, people have different ministries. There are, there are evangelists who've gone into countries that maybe have one convert in a lifetime because of the fields that they were in. But their lives were very, very productive for the Lord. But they were one of the ones that brought, home, brought forth the 30-fold, maybe, visibly. But in God's estimation, that's what He was supposed to do. And there are others, there are some places that you can go to and you share, and people just come to the Lord. I'll give you an example, it's China. China thought that they'd throw out all the missionaries in the 1950s and there was a cultural revolution and everything got destroyed and you know they really dealt with the church. They just wiped it out. Well, guess what's happening? God had a plan. And the plan was that Christianity was just going to explode in China. Just give it another 30 or 40 years and it was going to explode in China. Now they say there's more believers in China than there are in the United States. Not percentage-wise but numerically wise. And now when I go and speak with Chinese groups is where more people get saved than any other. So I love to go and speak to groups just over from China because people are getting saved. And it's not because, oh, you know, I speak some, you know, not because my Chinese is so good. (laughs) It's because God has so prepared that field. It's so prepared. You just look at a Chinese person and say, Jesus, and they get saved. So quick. To get saved. The heart is so open there. You would think that communism would just crush the whole thing. Well, guess what? God had a plan. So, evangelists that go into China can have a much more glowing newsletter than one who goes into, say, India. It's much tougher in India. So, But God has different places for each of them. This is what He's saying. But all of them are doing what they're supposed to do. They are all fruitful. They all have deep roots. The world is not choking them out. This is what you must pray for. You have to pray that God would do this with you. Father, don't let me become choked out by the world. Because if you think you can handle it, you will fall. He who thinks he stands, let him take heed lest he fall. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you say, Father, protect me from slipping away. Protect me from falling away. Protect me from being choked out by the cares and the worries of the world. Protect me from that. Guess what? God answers prayer. God will protect you from that. 
If you pray that prayer regularly, God protect me from being choked out by the world. You will be protected. If you don't, you won't. The world is deceitful. The enemy is tricky. And he will do things to snatch things out of your life. Remember who he said. He said, my brothers, my sisters, my mother, these are the people. These ones are the ones who obey my Father. What did he say? Whoever does the will of my Father, this is in verse 50 of chapter 12. My Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Whoever does the will of my Father. Obedience to God. Fear God, keep His commandments. Fear God, keep His commandments. Obedience to God. If you obey God and you get these practices in your life of obeying God, you will stay close. I was just encouraging one of my, my family members who knows the Lord and he grew up in the church. Or they're not getting plugged. They just moved and it's taken them a while to get plugged in with the church. I said, you've got to pursue this. Be active. Be vigilant in getting in the body of Christ and getting established. You will leave college one day. You will go move to a town. Make it as your number one priority. I've got to find a body of Christ to plug into and become part of the life of the body of Christ. Be involved in an active Bible study. Why? Because you are weak and you will be overcome by the devil. You cannot stand alone. You cannot. And the world will little by little choke you out. And it's going to happen so you're not even going to notice it, but in a couple of years you're going to think, I don't even read my Bible anymore. I mean, I don't even believe this stuff. And then you're going to see your marriages fall apart, your kids fall apart. You have to be vigilant in doing this, in taking the steps of being involved in the body of Christ. You can't let this go and think, oh, I moved, so, so I, I, I'm off the hook now. You're not off the hook. God has provided a place. If He's moved you to a place, there are fellow believers. Do not neglect the fellowship of the saints, which is the habit of some. But you must encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. We must be there to encourage one another. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to speak about the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Lord, you reveal these things first to the apostles. You reveal this, the mystery of the kingdom that would come and is demonstrated in the church, in the body of Christ, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs in the body of Christ. Father, as Jesus speaks about the kingdom, help us to learn what this is to be like. Help us to learn from the words of Jesus. Father, continue to open up the word to us, I pray. Open up the word. I pray, Father, for these young people, that they would not slip away, that the, the cares of the body, the cares that occur in the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the cares of the world, the worries of the world, would not cause them to slip away. Father, but there would be firm, deep roots, and that they would not get drawn astray. Father, please work in their lives. Work in their lives, I pray. The grace of God be there. In the name of Jesus. Amen.